Isn't there something like an object in motion will remain in motion unless acted upon by an equal or greater force? Well, you are an object. So if you can put yourself in motion, that's the hard part. Forget the shoulds, coulds, ought tos, I thinks, and I hopes, and just start. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Famous Failures, where I normally interview the world's most interesting people about their failures and what they learn from them. I say normally because this is a special episode of Famous Failures. Our guest today, Neil Pastricha, who is the author of five New York Times bestselling books, joins us to answer your questions, questions that were submitted by the audience members. Neil is the author of The Book of Awesome, a catalog of simple pleasures based on his 50 million hit award-winning blog, and The Happiness Equation, which is a nine-step guidebook to happiness based on new research. His latest book is called You Are Awesome, How to Navigate Change, Wrestle with Failure, and Live an Intentional Life. In addition to writing numerous New York Times bestselling books, Neil is also one of the most popular TED speakers of all time with his first TED Talk, The Three A's of Awesome, ranked as one of the 10 most inspiring of all time. His work has been featured in hundreds of outlets, including CNN, BBC, The Today Show, The Early Show, The Oprah Free, Winfrey Network, Harvard Business Review, Fast Company, Fortune, Forbes, and much, much more. Neil graciously offered to hold this Ask Me Anything session for the readers of the Weekly Contrarian, which is my weekly newsletter, which you can sign up for at weeklycontrarian.com. In the AMA, Neil answers questions about the relationship between appreciation and happiness, how to expose your true inner authentic self, how to go from being a glass half empty person to a glass half full person, and much, much more. Before I play you the interview, my book, Think Like a Rocket Scientist, is now available for pre-order. I've been ecstatic about the early reviews of the book. The book was named a must-read by Susan Cain, endlessly fascinating by Daniel Pink, and bursting with practical insights by Adam Grant. The book was also selected by Adam Grant as his number one pick among his top 20 books of 2020. You can find out more about the book and pre-order it at rocketsciencebook.com. And if you pre-order the book, you'll get digital access to the book to read on your favorite device within just seven days of your pre-order. So that means you can start reading the book months before the book is actually released to the public. If you pre-order the book, you also get pre-order bonuses worth at least 10 times the cost of the book. Those bonuses go away on launch day. So please head over to rocketsciencebook.com sometime before April 14th to pre-order the book and get your bonuses. Without further ado, please enjoy this AMA session with Neil Pasricha, and thank you as always for listening. Hey everybody, this is Neil Pasricha, hanging out in a hotel room in Dallas, Texas. Before I go and give a speech, Ozan was kind enough to send me the final AMA questions, ask me anything questions that you had sent to him. And so I promised him that I would click them open grab a recorder and just literally sort of stream of consciousness, read them and answer them all for you. I'm going to do that right now. I don't know how it's going to work out. I haven't really done this type of thing before, but I want to give it a shot. So I appreciate your patience and your permission to kind of do that with you. I also feel really flattered that you wanted to ask me a bunch of questions. So I'm going to click open this file. I will read every single question on there. Scrolling up and down quickly, it looks like there's 14 questions. They all have names on the bottom, so I will do my best now. Okay. Number one, there is so much research and so many expert opinions on quote unquote, how to make life meaningful, change your world, and so on. My question is, 
quote unquote, how to, am I doing that right? Quote unquote, I don't know. It's in quotes. How to choose the right ideas slash suggestions and how to, also in quotes, not feel guilty for not acting on all the ideas which one likes. From Renu Sharma. Thank you, Renu, for that question. Ignore whatever doesn't resonate with you. Think of yourself like somebody uh, hanging out over a river in the Yukon in the 1800s, literally panning for gold. Okay, that is your job as a thirsty student of the world. You may hear things in presentations or TED Talks or speeches or lectures. You're a curious person. I can tell by your question that you resonate with or that you already do or that you mentally reject or that you want to do, but you don't have time to do, or you're like, just know that just doesn't work for you in your lifestyle. You're panning for gold. You're looking for nuggets. A lot of water is going to go by. There might be tiny little flecks of gold sometimes. There might be things that you want to capture and they just go by you or you can't catch them. That's okay. You're panning for gold. Let the things go that don't apply to you and just let them go. That's the whole point of any advice or any kind of feedback or any kind of writing, I think, in general. I agree, by the way, that that is a muscle to grow, but I'm just giving you permission to grow that muscle. Number two, the book of awesome is inspiring. How do you and how can we notice these moments of awesomeness in life and record slash document them from Clement Lee? Clement, Clement, Clement. I think I'm saying that right. Thanks, Clement. I appreciate the question. So it's 2020 when I'm recording this. In 2008, my wife told me she didn't love me anymore, and that was the end of our two-year marriage. Uh, it was heartbreaking. It was terrible, and I was in shock. At the same exact time, my best friend Chris attempted suicide and then eventually did take his life. And so in the span of a few months, I lost my wife, my best friend, and maybe as a result of those things, my house and a lot of my contacts and social circle. I started a blog called 1000awesomethings.com to cheer myself up. And I had nothing. I had nothing. You're asking me, how do I notice these things? I mean, I had three or four of them on my, on my piece of paper, but just by the practice of trying to find something to write down each day, I had to write down one thing. And I started at number 1,000, and for the next 1,000 straight weekdays on 1,000somethings.com, I wrote one. As I started writing, people started sending me comments. People were sending me text messages. I was finding more of them. By the time the awesome things ended, 1,000somethings.com, guess what? I had like thousands and thousands left. Enough to write more books. The Book of Awesome, by the way, is just a little file printout staple version of the blog. So the Book of Awesome that you mentioned is that blog. How do you notice these moments? By looking for them, by writing them down, by having a place you have to put them, by putting, in my case, a countdown, a thousand awesome things. I started with number 1,000. I forced myself to do it, okay? And because I had that public commitment where people were going to visit and I knew my mom would check the website, etc., I had to keep going. And that practice helped area 17 in my visual cortex light up as I started looking for and noticing these things. I was essentially carving out and deepening the neural pathways that helped me focus on positivity. Okay. Number three, what does the research tell us is the correlation between living a happy, fulfilled and or peaceful life and the likelihood of being at peace at the end of life? Americans don't do end of life well. I wonder how your work can improve this from Kathy Chang. It's very interesting, Kathy. I, I actually don't know a lot about the research between what our peacefulness is like at the end of life and how that's correlated between living a happy life during it. But I'm starting to look into that a little bit more. I have a podcast. It's called Three Books. I most recently interviewed Dr. Laura Markham, who is a very 
prominent parenting author, and she wrote the book Peaceful Parents, Happy Kids. And one of her three most formative books, so the premise of my podcast, of course, is to uncover and discuss the three most formative books of 333 of the world's most interesting people, publishing that for 14 straight years on the exact minute of every new moon and full moon up to 2031. And so I sat down in her Park Slope Brownstone with Dr. Laura Markham. One of her three books was called Who Dies by Stephen Levine and Andrea Levine. And it was honestly the first book on end of life that I had read in a long time that sort of opened my eyes to the fact that you're right. We don't do end of life well. We're often put in a clinical atmosphere away from friends and family and loved ones and experience a very traumatic death. The conversation around traumatic birth has kind of come to life for the last generation, has it not? You know, we have a lot more awareness and understanding of what midwives do and having home births and feeling in a relaxed and comfortable place and blah, 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 blah. But end of life, we don't talk about very much. I think you, Kathy Chang, are the start of this new conversation. I don't have a ton of the research, but I agree with you that we need to talk about it more. I know where I live in Toronto. I live on a street very close to a hospice and... The purpose of that hospice, of course, is to give people a positive, calm, and comforting end-of-life experience. I didn't even know that, by the way, as I started walking by. And when I talked to the people that run the hospice, they were like, the waiting list to get in here is sad because 99% of people that want to end their life here simply can't because we only have six beds. Even the infrastructure of things like hospices is so far behind. So much more to talk about there. You might want to listen to my conversation with Dr. Laura Markham on three books. That was chapter 46 of the show. Just as a starting point, starting point for me. Number four, how would you define appreciation? How does appreciation relate to happiness? Or maybe a little more concretely, how do you think do appreciation and happiness affect each other over time? From Christina Gutier. Okay, these are all really smart questions. <laughs> and I'm not surprised Ozan's got such an incredibly thoughtful community. Here's how I would use it. I really often refer to the research by Emmons and McCullough, E-M-M-O-N-S. Robert Emmons is really famous in this field. They found that if you can write down even 10 things you are grateful for at the end of the week, they compared it to people who wrote down things like hassles and people who wrote down events. So you can understand a positive thing you're writing down, like a specific positive thing. It can't just be like my husband. It has to be when my husband Antonio put the toilet seat down. It can't be my dog. It has to be like when my dog Trooper learned how to shake a paw. It has to be specific. When you compare those to people writing down hassles or events, well, the people that wrote down the gratitudes over a 10-week period were not just happier, but physically healthier. Of course, most of my work is on the how, not the what or why, right? So it's nice to know that study. Woohoo! We know that writing down gratitudes at the end of every week really cheers us up. But the how part's harder. And so what I do in my family to kind of bring this to life is I don't have a gratitude journal line on my bed. I, I just, I have something else I, I can talk about later, but I don't have a quote unquote gratitude journal. There I am using that phrase quote unquote again all the time. But what I do at the dinner table with my wife, Leslie and I are married and so for those that don't know my story, I then got remarried a number of years later, and we have little kids right now, three little boys, very young kids. We go around the table at night at the dinner table, and we play a game. We play a game. It's called Rose, Rose, Thorn, Bud. Rose. Everybody says a rose from their day, a gratitude, a positive thing. I got an assistant hockey practice. My boss gave me a compliment, whatever. Um, I got a package delivered that I was expecting. Then everybody says another rose. Then everybody says a thorn. A thorn is something that did not go well. A thorn is something that did not go well. You know, you got to get off your chest. Everybody else's job is to listen and nod empathetically. 
Okay. The last thing is a bud. B-U-D. Bud. A bud is something you are looking forward to. It could be tomorrow. It could be dessert tonight. It could be, I want to rent a villa in Tuscany when I'm 100 years old. Whatever. Rose, Rose, Thorn, Bud is a simple and practical game that we use in our dinner table to bake in some of that research around appreciation and gratitude that I quoted earlier. Okay. Number five, are there things that you would only write in a private gratitude journal and not on your blog? And if so, what are your reasons slash criteria for sharing things publicly or not? From Christina Gutierrez. I'm assuming that's the same Christina Gutierrez. Okay, here's what I have on my bedside table. I have a journal. Uh, I made it myself. I made it because I was doing it on cue cards for years, and now I just put it into an actual product, okay? It's called Two Minute Mornings. And I was going to say every day, but it's not every day. It's most days. I start my day by writing out my two-minute morning practice. And what I write down is, I will let go of, I am grateful for, and I will focus on. There is research underpinning each of these three things, each of these three sentences. I will let go of is crystallizing and ejecting an anxiety. In my new book, You Are Awesome, which is all about resilience, I have a whole chapter on this, chapter six, secret number six, called Reveal to Heal. I talk about how we have a lack of contemporary confession right now in the world uh, with the decline of the church and the rise of secularism. There's no longer the quote-unquote Catholic confession chamber or things like that, which also are in Buddhism, Mormonism, Judaism, Islam. We no longer have places to confess. So we're increasing our anxiety because we don't have a place to put the things we're worrying about. Yet there is research in Science Magazine by... Brasson and colleagues that shows that if you can minimize your regrets as you age, you live a happier life. So what's one way to do that? I will let go of, comparing myself to Tim Ferriss, I will let go of the five pounds I gained over the holidays. I will let go of the fact that I yelled at my kids yesterday. I wish I didn't do that. I feel like a bad dad, but I will let go of that. And then I am grateful for, I already talked about the the research around that. And then I will focus on, which is carving a will-do from your endless could do and should do. And I could talk at length about decision fatigue, but I won't bother here. That little practice helps me every morning. And yes, Christina, to answer your question, there are things in that that I don't always share publicly. That practice I highly recommend. I will let go of, I am grateful for, and I will focus on, okay? Number six, what are your thoughts about the next steps we must take as thought leaders to coalesce, if I said that right, the awesome concepts with the finite slash infinite evolution. It seems to me that one can't simply throw out the finite, but rather must master the limitations of the finite to actually leap perceptually into the infinite. Thanks, Dr. Charles Parker. I have no idea how to answer this question because I don't know the difference uh, between the two things. You're, I think, referring to, Charles, probably that book, Finite and Infinite Games by James Kars which I know is super popular right now and I've had on my list to read for a while and I own it and it's on my bookshelf, but I have not read it. I also bought The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek, which I also have not read, which I believe is based on that other book. But because I have not read either book, I feel stupid and dumb and woefully inadequate. And I therefore, I'm going to say, I'll answer your question when I'm more informed. Sorry, Dr. Charles Parker. Number seven, each of us has a definition of peace of mind, but I propose that it is based on reducing our individual anxieties. On the other axis are expectations and time frames. What are your thoughts on anxiety and happiness, expectations and time frames? From Scott Phillips from Casanova, New York. Wow. First of all, Scott, I just love the fact that you've taken something 
like a phrase that we all use and toss around, like peace of mind. And you've decided to like sort of crystallize and formalize and make that clearer to you. I know that Ozan's work is like this. And I think some of what I do, especially in my last book, The Happiness Equation, is around these same lines. For example, I have a confidence matrix, how I articulate confidence as a two by two with your opinion of yourself compared to your opinion of others. And if you're high on both, that's confident. If you're low on both, you're cynical. High on one or the other, you are either arrogant or insecure. You can do the math on the two by two, but you understand what I'm saying. And I have another one on decision-making. I compare time versus importance, not urgency like Stephen Covey does, but importance. And I talk about how we can automate things and regulate things and effectuate things in order to make space to debate things. What I'm hearing from you is that you have done something similar on the idea of peace of mind. You've got an axis on anxiety and happiness and another axis on expectation versus time frame. I think that's beautiful. I'm thinking about it right now. I'm kind of rolling it around in my head and I'm not smart enough to kind of like give you a really thoughtful reaction to it immediately. But I think the place you're taking us to is really beautiful and I guess my challenge to you would be, if you mark those out on a two by two, could you come up with labels? So for example, when expectations are high and happiness is high, what do you call that? Is that like a flow state? You know, just like try to come up with the words so that you and I and Ozan in this community can then parlay a little bit more around that model. These models are super fun and great ways to bring thoughts to life. Thank you, Scott. Number eight, if the quality of your life is determined by the questions you ask, how can we ask better questions? From Ida Friedman. This is it. <laughs> do you know how many interviews I've done for the launch of my book? And do you know how many questions have been as good as these ones? Like none. So whatever community you've created those on, you've done it. Like this is it. You are a curious tribe. Put yourself in places where you're surrounded by other people asking interesting questions. I know for me, I spent two years at Harvard Business School and... I felt woefully inadequate there for the most part, but because the, you know, the, the classrooms were seated in like the semicircle, the round, and it was in sort of a tiered way, like a theater, and the professor was in the side. By the way, the, the classroom were designed that way so that every single face in the room can see, ideally, every other face in the room, which I thought was really beautiful. I got better at asking questions because I just heard and was surrounded by people asking questions. So my challenge for you is, what podcast are you listening to? Are you listening to ones with, with hosts that you love listening to? Because they're questions that take you down pathways that your brain naturally wants to go. I am sometimes scared on three books, my podcast, that I'm leading my listener down rabbit holes that they won't care about. But what I have found over the two years that I've done the podcast is maybe those people do care and they take off and they don't listen or they delete my podcast. That's fine. But the people that I'm attracting, the people that are listening are super nerdy lovers of the world like me. And so this is a quote from Tim Urban, author of WaitButWhy.com. And I get the feeling that a lot of you read that blog because Tim Urban has a very similar mind to, to what I'm hearing in these questions uh, and, and was a guest on my podcast as well. Tim Urban is a very, very big genius, interesting dude. Like his whole thing is I'm writing for an audience that's like a stadium full of Tim Urbans. And if he can keep focused on that, then he will attract the tribe in the community that represents people like him. Similar, Ida Friedman, 
Put yourself in tribes and situations where people are asking questions like the ones you want to hear answers to that will keep putting yourself in places like that. By the way, if you want more on this topic, there is research to support this idea. It's based on a book called Connected, and I think the author is Nicholas Fowler, if I have it right, F-O-W-L-E-R. That was launched with a provocative op-ed in the New York Times called, Are Your Friends Friends Making You Fat? And the answer, of course, was, yes, they are. Even if you haven't met them, we are literally a function of the tribes that we are in. We're not as unique as we think we are, are we? Number nine, what in the world could possibly make you unhappy? Giovanni Penge. Penge? Well, I feel a bit unhappy when I can't answer questions. There's lots of stuff. Okay, Let, let's throw in to this conversation the famous Sonia Lubomirsky model, okay, that she posited in the book The How of Happiness. Sonia Lubomirsky is a very famous positive psychology researcher. Like I said, she's written the book The How of Happiness, formerly at Stanford, now at the University of California, I believe. She has a, a, a pie chart that she says 50% of our happiness is genetic. Okay, if you have two kids, you know this is true. You have a kid that's happier than the other kid, I'm sure. 10% of our happiness is circumstantial. And 40% of our happiness is intentional activities. So maybe genetically my set point is up or I've taught myself to make it up after wrestling through things like that divorce and the loss of my friend. And if you want that full story, by the way, that is the underpinning of my TED Talk. So if you go to TED.com and type in Neil Pasricha, TED Talk is called The Three A's of Awesome. That story is intriguing to you. So maybe that genetic baseline is wherever it is. And maybe you could say, for me, it's high, but I also have circumstances. My wife's grandmother just fell and broke her jaw in three places. That happened last week. That does make me unhappy. She's older and I worry about her fragility and I worry about how that will affect my wife and my children, which are her great grandchildren. And so I, I, you know, you get into the circumstances of your life and there's always stuff there. And then remember the 40% is intentional activities. Do I go to the gym and meditate and journal and write down gratitudes or do my gratitude games? Yeah, I do all that stuff. Do I read fiction? Yeah, I do that. I know that stuff makes me happy. It's proven. Do I sing in a choir? No, but I do sing. There's things like that, lots of things like that. We know all this happiness research. But when I find that I am unhappy, if I look at my day or my last two days, guess what? I was too busy to do anything like that. I didn't make time for it. I scrambled through the day trying to get stuff done, and then I paid the price, and then I become unhappy because I'm not investing in the intentional activities that help me. Think of the pie chart, 50% genetic, 10% circumstantial, 40% intentional activities. When you are feeling unhappy, which of those things have been dialed down for you? And could you dial them back up? Number 10, after so many years of shoulds, coulds, ought tos, I thinks, I hopes, tries, wins, fails, wishes, one days, how does one start pulling off the layers that life has put on us or we've put on ourselves to expose our true inner authentic self? Thank you from Eric J. What I hear in this question with the shoulds, the coulds, the ought tos, I think, is a model that most of us grow up with. We grew up thinking that motivation causes action. That's a normal way of thinking, right? You think, Uh, want to do leads to do. So you think that great running shoes lead to training for the marathon, or you think a nice moleskin notebook or a good idea leads to writing a novel. However, it's the opposite. Motivation does not lead to action. Action leads to motivation. The best way to train for a marathon is just to run to the corner, the stop sign, in your dress shoes. Then you'll think you can do it, and then you'll want to do it. You want to write a novel? You don't need a moleskin. You don't need a good idea. You just need to write one sentence before bed. That action will create a momentum that will be harder to stop. 
Zong could probably quote the Newtonian physics behind this, but isn't there something like an object in motion will remain in motion unless acted upon by an equal or greater force? Well, you are an object, Eric, and so am I. So if you can put yourself in motion, that's the hard part. Forget the shoulds, coulds, ought tos, I thinks, and I hopes, and just start. However, that small, simple step can be taken that will help you along the way. By the way, another, and this is, by the way, based on chapter eight, I believe, in the happiness equation. By the way, another way to think about this is the phrase, and you may have heard this phrase before. It goes like this. It is easier to act yourself into a new way of thinking rather than think yourself into a new way of acting. Okay. We're all really good at thinking. We think and think and think. Our brains are super big and we've got lots of ideas and we overthink, we overanalyze and we rationalize things and we make pros and cons. Have you ever tried to make a decision with an Excel spreadsheet? Then you know what I'm talking about. But sometimes it's better just to not think, to just do. It is easier to act yourself into a new way of thinking rather than think yourself into a new way of acting. Thanks for the question. Number 11. And like I said, there's 14 questions, so we got four left. My wife was a glass half full person, but now is a glass half empty person. She recognizes this change and wants to get back to being a glass half full person, but it feels like her wiring has changed. What should she do? From Anonymous. Okay, think back to the pie chart I just described three questions ago. 50% of your happiness is genetic. 10% is circumstantial. 40% is intentional activities, meaning that there is no such thing as a glass half full or half empty. In fact... The glass is refillable. The glass is refillable. So what should your wife do? Fill it up. In intentional activities, you've got things like going for nature walks, writing for 20 minutes at the end of the day about a list of gratitudes, or playing the Rose Rose Thorn Bug game. You've got reading 20 pages of fiction, which has been proven to open up your mirror neurons and increase your empathy and compassion and understanding, etc. You can sing in a choir. You can meditate. You can do conscious acts of kindness. Could you insert some of those happiness practices that we know work? I have a bunch of presentations on this stuff. If you want to check out globalhappiness.org, I did a bunch of videos on these topics so you can hear me talk about each of these things. But those are all little things that can fill up the 40%. Number 12, how can I recover if I think I am too far gone? I have too much disconnect with myself and others and I don't even know who I am anymore. Any thoughts? Michael. Michael, thank you. It was bold and courageous of you to put a question like this in writing because what I hear from you is a disconnection, that's the word used, with yourself. This is the point where you need to get help, okay? It is. You need professional help, and I'm not a doctor, and I'm not a therapist, but I think you got to talk to somebody because if you feel totally disconnected with yourself and you don't even know who you are anymore— that is a sign that it's time to connect with a health professional, say these things, let them ask a series of questions that they will use to try to filter your thoughts. It's it's a full psych assessment. By the way, I've gone through a full psych assessment, so as many members of my family. It's a healthy, positive practice. I highly recommend it if you're having jarring thoughts like this. And then they'll be able to say, you know what, here you're demonstrating some symptoms of this, or have you had this before, or what's the family history? That's important. And I don't I want to be careful here because I'm talking in a recorder in a hotel room in Dallas. I don't know you, Michael. I just hear the phrases. How can I recover if I'm too far gone? I am too much disconnected with myself. I don't know who I am anymore. Any thoughts? Yeah. Time to get help. Okay. It's time to talk to your doctor, family doctor, or somebody else and ask for a reference to a mental health professional. Number 13. When you're having a few low days, what are your best strategies to turning your headspace around? Okay. Well, I... 
sometimes tweet. <laughs> and it seems a bit simplistic, and sometimes people razzle me for it, but it's true. I say, change your day in 20 minutes. Go for a five or 10 minute run around the office, around your neighborhood. Write a few things you're grateful for, okay? And call somebody up and tell them you love them or leave them a voicemail. Like, I have lots of different versions of things like that, but literally a five or 10 minute walk through nature. Don't take your cell phone. Be in trees. Why? Trees release phytoncides. The chemical that trees release lowers your cortisol levels, literally. So I don't mean go for, I shouldn't have said go around the office. Go outside. That's most important. Also, just mentally cleanses you. If you've ever been in like a fight with your like husband or wife or boyfriend or girlfriend and like you, someone of you just walks out the door, isn't that healthy? Doesn't that work? Don't you come back with a little bit more perspective? Yes, that's one of my strategies if I'm actually uh, having a fight with my wife. But that really does work. And then write some gratitudes down. Call somebody, tell them you love them. You'll feel better about yourself. Okay, Sam? Number 14, if you had the chance to address the entire world for three minutes, what message would you share with us? Ted Voltmer. Well, right now, my Zoom recorder says 26 minutes, 50 seconds. So I guess I couldn't extend that to that. If I could, then here you go. But if it was just three minutes, I think what I would say is I'd say a bunch of stuff. There's so many things the world needs to do right now. The biggest thing of all, though, is I just put one message up around everywhere. And it would be chill. Chill, everybody. Chill. We got it good. We live in an abundant world. We live better than kings used to live 50 years ago. We have clean water in our taps. Most of us feel safe when we walk our front doors. We can marry who we want. We can live where we please. This stuff used to be like thrown in jail worthy a generation ago if you were gay or you're trans or anything like that. You can press a button and a car will pick you up. You can press another button and something will entertain you. You can press a button and there's food on your porch. You live like a king. We live in awesome world. So we need to chill. How do you chill? Turn off the news. Stop watching it. It's a business. MSNBC's job is to sell you Subarus. Fox News' job is to sell you some tax scam. Ignore the news. It's a distraction engine. What else did you delete? Social media. Cell phones. They are an addiction. How many people sleep within 10 feet of their cell phones? Show of hands. Can't see you all, so I'm assuming all your hands are up. If you slept within 10 feet of a bottle of wine and drank the bottle of wine before bed and drank it when you woke up in the morning, we'd all call you an alcoholic, but you're all phoneaholics, and I'm including myself here. We aren't understanding that our cell phones are reducing our happiness, and we're feeding ourselves an endless parade of everyone's better than us on social media. We're suffering from extreme levels of envy, and the news is making us feel tortured in our brains. We need to chill, delete the news, delete social media, separate yourself from your cell phone, connect more with this community, which is an awesome people, beautiful questions, and just relax and try your best to enjoy these beautiful fleeting 30,000 days that we all have. Thank you so much for this little special interactive Q&A, AMA. I really appreciate Ozan for putting this together. And thank you all for coming up with these great questions. Take care. Bye. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. Two things before you take off. First, if you don't want to miss out on future episodes of Famous Failures, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on and be sure to leave a review on iTunes or Google Play. Second, if you'd like to join thousands of others who receive a short email from me each Thursday with a list of articles, books, tools, quotes, and other gems that help you discover how extraordinary thinking produces extraordinary results, you can text my first name, which is Ozan, that's spelled O-Z-A-N, to 345-345. So once again, that's my first name, Ozan, O-Z-A-N, to 345-345. Or if you're in front of your computer, you can head over to ozanvarol.com and drop your email address. If you act now, you'll also get a free ebook called The Contrarian Handbook, Eight Principles to Innovate Your Thinking. As always, thank you for listening and see you next time.